Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 will be in verse 15. Don't worry if you didn't bring your Bible. We'll have the words on the screen behind me as well. Romans chapter 6. Um, what a joy it was to hear from Pastor Randall last week. If you missed that, I would definitely go check that out and listen to it. If you know people in South Dallas, they're looking for a really gospel, faithful church to be a part of. Randall's planting Trinity Gospel Church, which is launching this fall. Uh, and it's a joy to get to know him and serve with him in the life of this county. While you're opening your Bibles, um, I'm going to do something that my, my mom is going to be really sad that I did, which is I'm just, I just want to say thanks to my mom. He's right here. My mom is joining us today. Uh, and, uh, and it's a real joy um, to get to have my mom here. When you think about honoring your parents... Um, my mom, I can remember waking up in the mornings as a kid and seeing the lamp over this chair that was in the corner of our living room and my mom's open Bible uh, on the ottoman in front of her as she was praying. And it was a witness to me early on in my life from a very early age of the, um, the benefit, the blessing, uh, and the ordinariness of committing yourself to God's word in prayer. And I love you, mom, and I am honored by the way that you've shaped my life and why the Lord, how the Lord has used you to shape my life. So thank you. I love you. Um, Romans chapter 6. Uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, unashamedly, I love Bob Dylan's music. Um, I do. And now some of you feel like this is something I don't need to apologize for, uh, but my wife is something, uh, tells me that it's something I do need to apologize for routinely. Uh, because while I love Bob Dylan's music, she does not like Bob Dylan's music, particularly his voice. And so maybe you don't either, and you can judge me all you want, um, but it's not going to change. Uh, it's not going to change. I love his music. Uh, and one of, his most, one of my, my, my most favorite songs of his is this song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. I love the song so much that it was actually, and this is a fairly nerdy thing to admit, it was actually the name of my first blog, yougottaservesomebody.blogspot.com. Um, <laughs> Somebody else now owns it. His name is Steve, uh, and he's still writing Christian stuff on that blog. So way to go, Steve, if you're listening to this. Um, uh, but in this song, you got to serve somebody, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, he says this, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. Not a Baptist. Um, uh, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Dylan is right. You have to serve somebody. The only question is who? Who are you going to serve? It's not a matter of are you going to serve. You're going to have to serve somebody. The only real question is who? I want to read Romans 6, 15 through 19 as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If this is your first time with us, you may wonder, why do we do that? Well, this is because this is God's word. And as a church, we often respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is because we're thankful that God hasn't left us in silence. He has spoken. So let me read Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. We know that scripture says it never returns void. And so whether today um, it, it plants seeds or water seeds, we trust you with the spiritual fruit and growth. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, listen, Romans 6, 15 through 19 uses a word that none of us like, and for good reason. It's a word that particularly in the life of our own country is mired and textured with realities that we would prefer to look past, and that is the word slave. And I find that when Christians, particularly in the global West, deal with passages that use this word slave, there is an immediate hiccup and a hurdle to it. Because we read into it all of our historical realities of slavery. These are realities that we've addressed as a church, and there are realities that we should take into our historical imagination because they've been deeply detrimental to the life of the global West and the life of the world generally. And so I want to acknowledge that when we're talking about slavery in Romans 6, 15 through 19, and slavery particularly in the New Testament, it could, we could fall into two traps here. The first trap is that we could read into it everything that we think is true about specifically chattel slavery in America. That would be one trap. The other trap is that we would say, oh, slavery in the ancient world wasn't really that bad. It was all good, and everybody loved it. Both of those would be traps, okay? Slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery in the antebellum South, but it still wasn't not slavery, okay? So you didn't want to be a slave, It just wasn't the exact same thing that we have seen in the life of the global West, the Middle Passage, chattel slavery in the life of this country. Horrible, grim realities that we want to condemn wholeheartedly. But in this passage, it's talking about something slightly different. So when Paul makes comfortable use of not just saying, well, you once were a slave to sin, but now you are a slave to righteousness, he's not talking about all that you might think in terms of your American historical imagination, but he is wanting you to see something. And I want you to capture that today. I want you to understand it. But before we get into this passage, if you have your Bibles, go back to Romans 1.1. Because this is an interesting note here. Because before Paul calls us slaves of anything, he identifies himself as a slave. So that should show us that Paul doesn't mean this word. He's not using it punitively. He's not using it to mock us. He's not using it in a way to suggest this is a bad thing because it's how he self-identifies. Look at Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We go, well, servant and slave, those are two different words. Well, in your English translations, they are, but the Greek word behind both of them is the Greek word doulos. It's doulos, and it's, it's, it's usually translated for impact, meaning context helps determine how the word is translated. But what Paul says here is Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. And so going back to Romans 6, when we hear him say, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? That word is doulos. It's servant. It's slaves. 
And what Paul is trying to get us to see here is this. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. Now that strikes right at the core of American mythology, of radical individualism, that you are yours to have and to own and to keep. But really, the Bible wants you to see you don't belong to you. You are not your own. If by that you mean you're radically individualistic and no one can say anything about what you do. No, you are going to be a servant. You are going to be a slave. The only question is, whom will you belong to? Whom will you belong to? Who will have your loyalty, your allegiance, your heart, your affections? So let's look at what Paul has to say here. In verse 15, he returns to the question that opened up this chapter. Look at Romans 6, 15. What then? Look at Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he responds the same way he did in verse 1. By no means. When we were looking at this the first time, we said there's not a stronger way he could have said no. It's basically like he stomps his foot on the ground and says, no, no, no. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, no, no. Are we to continue to sin because we are not under law but under grace? No, no, no. Paul is emphatic in this no. It is a strong no. What he has been saying in Romans 6 is what he's developing here. Life under the law says if you sin, you die. That's life under the law. Life under the law is if you sin, you die. Life under grace says if you sin, there is forgiveness. Life under the law says if you sin, you die. That is the consequences of sin. Life under grace says if you sin, there is forgiveness. That's what life under grace is like. Grace isn't given so that we can sin without consequence. Grace is given so that one will bear the consequences of sin on our behalf. Grace isn't given so that we can live without consequence. Grace is given so that we don't have to settle for sin any longer. That's what life under grace is like. Sin is destructive. The Apostle Paul knows it and you know it. Sin never delivers on its promises. It always corrupts us. And yet by nature, we are chained to sin. By nature, we are slaves to sin. By nature, we are unrighteous from the very beginning. And yet when we are moved from life under the law, which is slavery to sin, to life under grace, which is freedom from sin and slavery to righteousness, when we experience that salvation, we are free from the terror of failing God's law. We are free from the fundamental consequences of sinning, which is separation from God. And that freedom from the judgment of God is mirrored by a freedom to experiencing new life with God, where we increasingly begin to enjoy and experience the fruit of salvation practically in our life. And that work is called sanctification. Paul has told the church in Rome in Romans 5 that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone and that this declaration of righteousness is now a new foundation. 
But in Romans 6, he's trying to show them how this new foundation they've been given with the righteousness of God can now empower a new freedom as they live their life with God. And this is what he's trying to get us to see, what that can look like, what the dynamics of this new life with God are. Paul is not saying that Christians are no longer slaves or servants. He's not saying, well, you didn't belong to God, you were your own. No, he's saying, no, when you did not belong to God, you belonged to sin. And when you enter into life in Christ, you no longer belong to sin. You no longer belong to unrighteousness. You no longer belong to Satan. You now belong to the Lord God. You are his. He's merely saying that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves of obedience. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to what? What does it say? Death. Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There is an either or in front of every person. Will you belong to God and his righteousness, or will you belong to Satan and unrighteousness? There's no third way. There's no neutral territory. The world is at war, and you either will belong to God or someone else. You may think, well, why exchange? Listen, I I, I thought freedom was the ability to do whatever I wanted, to live without constraint, to live without restriction. Why is it good news that one constraint is exchanged for another. Well, look at where they lead. One way of belonging leads to death. That doesn't sound good, right? That doesn't sound like anybody's best life. It doesn't sound like anybody's hashtag thriving, right? Leading to death doesn't sound like the path you want to be on. But there is another way the way of obedience, the way of belonging to God, which leads to righteousness and from righteousness righteousness to life. We're set free from sin, but we're set free from slavery to sin for what purpose? Look at verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We are freed from slavery to sin that we might become obedient from the heart. When God does this work of transformation in our life, it is to give us a new heart. A new heart that not only can do good and righteousness, but desires to. Obedience from the heart is a part of the impact of God's transformative work in our lives. It's not all of the impact, but it's a part of God's impact of grace in our life, that our obedience, our obedience that was once rendered as if we were working for Pharaoh is now given over to a God who loves us, who forgives us when we fail. Our obedience will be given as an act of joyful, loving worship. Let me just say it like this. Obedience from the heart means the goal of Christian obedience is for it to not be begrudging. For it to not be a begrudging obedience. 
just a debt rendered. That's not how Christians think about obedience. Our obedience as Christians is not, well, God did this incredible thing, and now I'm in an insurmountable debt, so now I have a grave duty. That's not how Christian obedience works. Christian obedience isn't God did something, you're in debt, and now you have a lifetime of duty. It's that God has done some incredible thing in your life because of love, because of love, and that you're not a debtor, you're not a servant. What are you? You don't work for a taskmaster and a pharaoh. You enter back in as a child of God, indentured to his righteousness, an apprentice to his ways, looking to him for direction. Paul, he says this in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul is not saying that slavery is the operative category. He's saying, I know a category you'd be familiar with, and let me help you understand this concept using it. He's saying, I know that you're familiar that servants live in the master's house. And in this time and age, they certainly did. I know that you're familiar with the concept of doing and reward and merit. And what Paul is saying is there is reward for obedience. There is reward for it, and it is righteousness in life. Not the righteousness in life that saves, but the righteousness in life that sanctifies, that transforms us and changes. Here is what Paul is getting at when he talks about obedience from the heart. When we are under sin, when we are living life under the law, obedience is a burden and God's word is our condemnation. When you're born into this world, obedience is a burden and God's word is your condemnation. That's what life under the law is like. Obedience is begrudging. It's a burden. The restrictions that God puts on us for flourishing look like chains. And God's word is not a word of comfort to us. It's a word of condemnation. That's what life under the law is like. But life under grace, when we are set free from the pit of sin, obedience is no longer a burden, it's a blessing. God's word is no longer our condemnation, it's our calling. That's what life under grace looks like, where obedience has become a blessing of life with God, and God's word is no longer the word of our condemnation, it's the word of our salvation. That's what life with God under grace looks like. That, that obedience is a blessing. You might go, well, why is obedience a blessing? Because obedience is hard, isn't it? No? Not for you? Obe obedience is hard, isn't it? That was still pretty weak. <laughs> obedience is hard, isn't it? Yes. yes. I thought I was the least righteous person in this room for a moment. Because it is hard. Obedience is hard. It's incredibly difficult. There are the temptations of the world. There are the temptations of the flesh. There are the remnants of the old sin nature. There's the opposition of the enemy. Everything in a broken world is engineered against your obedience to God's way. Obedience is hard. It is hard to trust God when we would rather trust ourselves. It is hard to be generous when we feel like we are the recipient of hostility. It is hard to choose purity in a culture of immorality. Obedience is hard. It's incredibly challenging. But why is it better? Why is obedience a blessing? Why? What is the, what is the goal? What is the motivation of obedience from the heart? Well, there's a few things maybe that you would want to write down. 
Obedience is a blessing because it aligns us with God's character. It shapes us into the image of Christ Jesus. It shapes us into the image of the most fully human person who's ever lived, which is the God-man, Jesus Christ, allowing us to live in the midst of a broken world the way that God has intended it. It aligns us with God's character. Obedience is a blessing because it deepens our communion with God. Introduced this a couple of weeks ago. Communion with God is the enjoyment and experiences of all of God's blessings in Christ. You don't get it by obedience, but you cultivate it through obedience. I often encounter Christians who'll tell me they're experiencing incredibly low degrees of experience of the blessings of God in Jesus. And it is not always the result of disobedience or a lack of obedience. Sometimes it's the result of spiritual opposition. Sometimes it's the result of trial and hurdle. Sometimes it's the result of physical frailty in our own lives or in the life of the world. Sometimes it's a result of great injustice and lamentation. But oftentimes it can be a result of our lack of obedience to God. You can expect very low degrees of enjoyment and experience of what God has for you in Christ if you are constantly exchanging what he has for you for something lesser. You shouldn't expect to experience thriving intimacy with God if you're constantly exchanging attentiveness to his word to attentiveness to Instagram. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You, you, you can, uh, it's not a surprise if you're experiencing really low degrees of enjoyment, of assurance of salvation, if you're constantly checking your savings account to make you feel safe. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because God is saying, here is all of the blessings of God in Christ. And obedience is constantly returning to this well and saying, I will draw firstly from here. And most deeply from here. And then I will go to all of the other common graces of life. All of the other simple and ordinary blessings of God's provision. Obedience deepens our communion with God, our experience and enjoyment of all that God has gifted us by grace. Obedience shapes us into God's character. It deepens our intimacy and enjoyment of what God has for us in Jesus. And guess what? The third reason why obedience is a blessing is because it's not a blessing to you. It's a blessing to the world. The world needs more people compelled to righteousness, integrity, truth, conviction, and compassion. Can I get an amen? amen. Absolutely. You 100% need this. Our world needs this. The things that you're bothered by in this broken world are usually a lack of the righteousness of God being displayed publicly. And you want to live in that kind of world. And guess what? The world wants to be in that kind of world. The world, I want our community to be a community that is shaped by people behaving righteously publicly. And there is ever-present temptation to not do that. To settle for saying, you know, righteousness, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. to like 11, 15 a.m. That's when we're going to sing our songs. That's when we're going to give thanks. That's when we're going to pray. And then I'm just back into the hustle. I'm back into the grind. I'm back into the distraction. Obedience is a blessing because it shapes you into the character of God. Obedience is a blessing because there is a spiritual reward for it. Not salvation, but sanctification. And obedience is a blessing because it's a witness to the world that there's something better. Even when it's done in whispers, it's whispers of righteousness in a world desperately clinging for it, desperately crying out for it. We as Christians are liberated from sin, hell, and judgment for a purpose, 
that we might live lives of holiness. That we might live lives of holiness. I, I grew up thinking, no fault of my mother or father, that I needed to be forgiven so that I wouldn't spend forever in hell. And that's true. There is an eternal consequence to whom we belong to. But it took me a long time to realize that the freedom of receiving grace doesn't just look, change what life will look like in the future. It changes what life looks like in the present, right now. And if we're honest, I don't think many of us view obedience as a blessing for the present. I think we think of it as a burden for the present because of what's promised in the future, right? Then we think about obeying God now as it's kind of like cost of doing business, right? Like I want my forever home to change and I know the pastor tells me that's really predicated on grace, but I just wanna hedge my bets and make sure I just do it right for life. It's not a very powerful engine. It's an engine that runs on shame and fear and those are espresso shots. They give you a quick fire, but they destroy the cadence of your heart. That's what happens. And yet God is inviting us into a new way of obedience, a way that is accompanied by blessing. We see God's call in our lives, his commands and his kingdom rhythms. And God is not telling you those are the cost of salvation. He has taken upon himself the cost of salvation already. He's saying to you, if you've experienced salvation, these are now the consequences of transformation. Obedience is not the cost of our salvation. It's the consequence of our transformation. It's how it plays itself out in our lives. Look at verse 19 as we land here. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It's not a dig. Paul isn't mocking them. He's just saying, I know I'm using an analogy about slavery. I'm not saying this perfectly captures it. I'm just trying to help you get it, okay? For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We are free from sin so that we can now be brought in to slavery to righteousness, brought into a new master's house, before we're rescued by God and invited into life in Christ, we are unable to not sin. We can't not sin. We're separated from God and we're strangers. We're not able to live righteous and holy lives before God transforms our heart with grace. But when we experience salvation, when we receive the foundation of the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith, we are given a new set of desires and we can now present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And you may think, but isn't freedom, isn't being set free, doesn't freedom mean that we can now do what we want? No. Freedom is not and has never been the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom, true freedom, is about being able to do what is good what is true, what is beautiful, what is right. Another way to say it is this, freedom isn't living without limits. Freedom is learning to live within the right limits. We're born under the wrong constraints. We are born under constraints that do not cultivate freedom, they crush freedom. When we're born again, we are born again into new constraints. The character and commands of God. But unlike our first 
birth, the second birth doesn't, uh, doesn't bring us into a life of crushing freedom. It brings us into a life of cultivating freedom. And this is one of the great misunderstandings of Christian freedom. God doesn't set us free from sin so we can live without God. God sets us free from sin so that we can live with God. That's why God sets us free from sin. Do you know why? Because he delights in having his people live their whole life in his presence. And he knows that he is the great object of their worship. And in him, they will find the desires of their heart satisfied. Let me, let me just use an analogy I've used before. Let's imagine you and I are fishing on a lake, something I've never done. <laughs> but let's imagine that we are, and we're sitting in a boat. We're throwing our lines out. I don't know what you do when you're fishing, but let's just imagine we're doing that, okay? I know that there are fish. I know there's a pole. I know there's a line, okay? And we're in a boat. And let's imagine we're sitting there on the boat, and we're throwing the lines out, and we're trying to catch something. We're sitting there, we're talking, and all of a sudden a fish jumps us out of the water, an incredible fish, the kind of fish that people fish their whole life for, and it jumps right out of the water and into our boat. Would it make sense if I pointed to that fish and I said, incredible, look at this fish who has finally escaped the prison of the lake. Look at how smart this fish is. Look at how incredibly lucky this fish is. It broke through the bondage of the surface of the water. And it's now free from that which constrained it. You'd say, what? (laughs) The fish isn't more free when it escapes the captivity of the water. The fish is less free. Why? Because the fish was created to live in the water. You and I were created to live in the presence of God. We are not more free when we attempt to escape it. We are less free. And one of the greatest lies of Satan, the lie that Satan told them at the very beginning was that isn't God, isn't he kind of tough to live with? Wouldn't it be better if you were God? Wouldn't you have more freedom? Wouldn't you have greater experience of the world? And that lie has echoed and echoed and echoed and echoed. And that will be the lie that's waiting for you. The moment you walk out these doors, it'll be the lie that's waiting for you on Monday morning when your alarm clock goes off or the first kid starts crying. It'll be the lie that's waiting for you at the end of the week when you feel like your plans didn't work out, that you would be more free if you escaped the captivity of the presence of God. And it has always been a lie, and it has never delivered on the false promises it makes. We are most free when we learn to live our life with God, to live free with God, to live as a slave to righteousness. And what keeps us from this? Fundamentally, it's our slavery to sin. And some of you still remain there. Some of you still feel like, I can't give myself over to God. You know that there will be a loss there. I'll tell you, the loss that you'll experience in surrendering yourself to God will be nothing like the loss you experience of living apart from him forever. Some of us are still there. Some of us are tempted by sin. I know that I certainly am. The old man still remains. The old temptations still show up. The the bartering with God, I'll give you a little bit of me today in exchange for a little bit of you tomorrow, and then maybe I'll pull that back on Wednesday because I have something I really want to do. I know it's probably not what you'd have me do, but it's really what I really want to do. So if I live my life for you on Monday and Tuesday, maybe you give me a hall pass on Wednesday, and we just barter 
believing that there's some third way where we can not give ourselves fully to God, not give ourselves fully to the world, and kind of play both sides. That is also a way of death and destruction and calamity. There are the temptations of the way of the world, the way of fear of surrender and allegiance or giving our allegiance and loyalty to lesser things, and those temptations are ever-present. But I want to invite you today. I want to invite you regardless of where you're at. Maybe you're thinking, I've never given my life over to God. I've never even surrendered to him in the first place, let alone every day. I want to invite you to consider what is God, what is God asking of you? To consider who do you really belong to? What is your life bearing out? Who are you going to serve? Because you're going to have to serve somebody. And it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You are not your own. You will belong to someone. Better to belong to a delighted father than a cruel Pharaoh. And that's what God is inviting us into. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We ask that you would bless this time, that as we come to your table, that we would come with hearts of faith. Spirit of God, that through the cracker and the juice, the bread and the wine, that you would renew our hearts, restoring to us the joy of our salvation and the power of the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me?